Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you? I might surprise you. Garbage Pail Kids. First time we've heard that. We hear Nike and Coke and McDonald's. First time we've heard that. There's a bunch of reasons why I think this was so cool. One, it was totally attention grabbing, right? It was a parody of Cabbage Patch Kids. And gosh, when do we ever do fun products around parodies these days? That That's unheard of. Number two, it was personalized. Everybody loves a great campaign that's personalized. I was um, Dale Snail. You would have been Grim Jim or Jim Reaper. <laughs> and the other thing, Garbage Pail Kids, it was gamified, right? You collected them. They were cool stickers. They had yeah. fun. You flip them over and you made a puzzle. And it wasn't just trading cards for sports that only some people could connect with. Everyone can, can connect with this grotesque imagery and this fun parody on Cabbage Patch Kids. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Dale Sperling, the Chief Marketing Officer of Stash, the seven-year-old company that is one of the world's fastest-growing fintech companies. Stash is a personal finance app that makes investing affordable and easy. You can actually start with just $5. Stash has a strong focus on education with a purpose to crack one of the toughest challenges in America, financial literacy and financial freedom. Stash has upwards of 6 million subscribers and has attracted $450 million in venture capital over its seven-year life. My guest Dale was the first marketing hire at Stash back in 2015 and has been CMO since 2017. Dale is a graduate of Rutgers University and her career path has taken her to AOL, internet publisher Caboose, Walt Disney, a startup she co-founded, and a few years of marketing consulting. This is my conversation with a CMO who loved ad jingles as a kid. We'll talk about that. Here's Dale Sperling. You've been at Stash seven years, like one of the first employees. You've been five as CMO, which is about double the average tenure right now for CMOs. So I'd like to start with a story of how you discovered Stash and what compelled you to join. Sure. I ended up at Stash, I think, in a very serendipitous way. I started out in digital media at America Online, pre-Time Warner, um, mm -hmm. pre-merger, pre, uh, wow. back, back in the days when, you know, we were dial-up style. Um, and, and I got a good base understanding of media marketing. Um, I bounced around to other big organizations and really learned everything I could about all the different marketing functions, creative concept, execution, reporting, and tracking. And the change in my career that really allowed me to find that path to stash was my first jump to a startup. And gosh, what a change. Um, working at a startup, you, you have an idea, you do the work, you ship the work yourself, sometimes coding, and then you see the results. 
And the speed of that loop, it's, it's, it's an adrenaline rush. It's addictive. And, and the personal attribution and accountability to the results, that's addictive. And so it wasn't really a hard decision for me when I was asked to consult at a fintech startup pre-launch at that time. I was an easy fit for the gig, to be honest. I was cheap. I was flexible. I was uh, somewhat a Jane of all trades already from all my various roles or uh, other organizations. And here I am seven years later. You know, I, I didn't set out in my career to become the CMO of a fintech startup. I didn't dream of this when I was a little girl. I don't have the pedigree you would expect from my title, um, even at an org at this stage. But I was at the right place and the right time with the right skill set. I can execute and lead. And I think that's what this organization has needed from me. Well, what compelled you to stay for seven years? Because one thing is joining and the other one is staying for seven years at a startup, Yeah, yeah. which, you know, is challenging. I've, I've had experience with many startups since I left P&G and it is a different gig. Yeah. I absolutely subscribe to, I drank the Kool-Aid, I love the mission. We are doing good in the world, and I feel good about what I'm marketing. I know that the customers that are using our product are learning how to manage their finances. I know that they're gaining those skills, and they're going to take that on with them for the rest of their lives. And they are having better financial outcomes. The folks that we get to come onto our platform and use our product in its entirety are growing wealth for the long term. And that's that that feels good. Right? I've worked at other organizations where, you know, I was pushing materialistic things and maybe not as as genuine of a product that really helped folks. And and I, I feel good about it. And particularly at this org, we've really stayed true to that mission and we've prioritized business decisions often to optimize for customer outcomes instead of a, a, a business outcome that would have propelled us faster. And, and that's why I stay, because we keep making those good decisions. We keep doing good by our customer, and um, we're really focused on those outcomes. Can you speak a little bit more, Dale, about how this purpose is so personal to you? I know that there are so many kids and so many Americans that come out of school and, and out of their rearing in their families that don't know how to manage money. It's, it's a problem in America. People are not fiscally responsible. They're not fiscally aware. They don't even know how to save. They're opening credit cards. They're getting into debt. Um, and they're starting their life on the wrong foot. And uh, saving and investing is so out of touch for so many people. And, and that's, that's a tragedy. Right? It shouldn't be. It's actually pretty easy. So, so being a part of a company that has education at its mission, at its core mission, um, and facilitates that through technology and, and advice is, is really meaningful. And I, I think that if more people, more companies uh, aligned with this, we, we would be better off as a society as more people would understand how to manage their money and um, have better outcomes and get out of debt and be able to afford things they want to do in life and, and live a better life. So, and that, that all translates, I mean, we can get into a whole like cascade here of like mm -hmm. less stress. Um, yeah. more happiness, less mental Health, illness, healthier. healthier, you know, yeah. there, there's tons of research around this. So you are in an increasingly crowded field and you have seemed to differentiate yourself through this focus on education and empowerment orientation 
grand purpose. Like it's a, kind of an awkward way to say it, but but you are. I think you stand out because you do have this higher mission, and you are about education. And I'd like you to talk about how you arrived at that in the life of this startup. Was it always there from day one? Or did you come to it as a small team? Yeah. So how did you, and I know it's never as neat looking back on it as it is going through it. Yep. But tell us that story. Yeah, this is actually a a founder story that I've heard told over and over again. um, Because our two co-founders, Brandon and Ed, were working together um, at Macquarie and um, a a big financial company. And um, they had been working at high like high frequency trading desks and also dealing with huge financial, um, um, you know, clients. And um, the story goes, somebody came over to our co-founder, Ed, and asked, you know, hey, hey, buddy, I've got all this money I came into. What do I do with it? And Ed's like, what? Like, why are you asking me this? You're like an analyst. This is your job. You should know where to invest it. And um, it got both of them thinking and, and kicking this around. And the question started coming up of like, why don't people who are in finance not even know how to invest? And so uh, Brandon and Ed went out and they legit went and onto the street and started talking to people and asking people about it. Um, and they connected with myself and some other folks early stage. And we just talked about it and we did surveys and research and really tried to figure out why don't people invest? Why don't people feel like investing is for them? Or why don't they understand where to invest? And it comes down to a couple basic things. They don't think they have enough money. They don't think they know anything about the space. They think they have to have a degree or have some sort of certification. Um, and they think it's something they can put off for another time. And so the obvious you know, solution to that was create a platform that was grounded in that advice and education and that empowerment so that those folks who use the platform can do it themselves, can learn, can can do it at their own pace and with the money they have now. And it was really, education was really a, an advice, right? Um, we are Aria was, was really part of the seed of the startup from, from the get-go. And over time, it's just evolved. How do you ensure that that point of difference, that kind of purpose comes to life every day with everyone inside and outside Stash, because that's where the hard work is, right? A lot of people have a purpose or a reason for being that is beautiful. And I recently interviewed the CMO of Delta, and that entire interview was about differentiating on their purpose and their people. So, And that's the hard work of leadership. So I'd like you to talk about how you keep that purpose front and center day in and day out. It's a challenge. Um because oftentimes that purpose doesn't directly align with business outcomes. Mm. So you have to make, make space for it. You have to create the opportunities to, to express that purpose, both in, in your internal workings as an organization and externally facing so that you can stand out amongst your competitive set and, and be known for something. And, um, that ex- that expression externally comes out in different ways. It, it's how we onboard a new customer, how we provide them a framework of advice and education. It's the support we provide on social media and other touch points where we're constantly trying to let them know we're here for them, that we're providing them the advice and education they need at the, at the point in time they are in their journey. 
it, it comes out in the expression of when the market uh, went sideways recently, down, sideways, so many different ways. Um, we follow up with real-time feedback from our CEO, from our investment team around what to expect, what you should do, um, providing that support for our customer. And, and making the space in your day, in your workflows and prioritization of work to, to do this is, is important. And I have to prioritize it for the team so that they have the space to do it and, and they can continue to serve our customer in that way. And, and I think it comes from that place of leadership, of making that space, of prioritizing the work, even at the expense sometimes of, of other revenue generating efforts. So it's, it's, it's the trade-off, right? It's prioritization. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Great purpose-driven companies have the courage to take on tough challenges to bring their purpose to life. And you are certainly focused on a tough challenge, financial literacy, education, right? If it was easy, it would have been cracked before. And you have this ambitious program in North Carolina to try some new things Mm -hmm. to disrupt that cycle. So could you tell us about that? Tell us a bit about that program and what you are learning as you bring your purpose to life, I think, in a really ambitious and innovative way. Yeah. Uh, So the North Carolina partnership is with the Department of Education, um, and we are bringing a platform called Stash 101 to the classrooms in North Carolina. And Stash 101 is our space to focus on free financial education, something I believe everyone obviously deserves access to. And for educators, we have a classroom product that helps teachers with classroom management using a token economy model combined with a banking and investing simulation so kids can learn how to manage and grow their money before it becomes real. And for everyone else, Americans 18 plus, in this Stash 101 space, we have learning guides, we have courses, and actually we have a really fun um, game called Fantasy Investing. It's an app. And Jim, I challenge you to draft a diversified lineup of bonds and <laughs> okay. stocks and ETFs that will beat mine maybe this week. It runs okay. every week. Um, I'm pretty competitive, so so you got to be on your game. And um, this is part of 101. It's free to register and play. You can win cash prizes, um, see if you land on the top 10 of the leaderboard. But this is all part of our, our Stash 101 education efforts. And so in North Carolina, they are partnering with us to bring this classroom tool to their teachers, educators, and students so that kids have an opportunity to learn about money before it becomes real. And, and, and that's really powerful. That's meaningful for the, the state of North Carolina, which is quite honestly um, paving the way on the financial education and financial literacy front. Um, but I hope it's, it's a tipping point for other states to see that um, they need to be providing um, this type of education, and um, they also need to be requiring this type of education across their states. What grade does it start with? So we'll be starting with eighth grade. 
um, and we'll be doing coursework with the eighth grade. And then um, uh, it's a pilot and we'll see how that performs and how what the um, compliance is amongst teachers and kids and, and how everything rolls out. But the hope is that we will be able to roll it out from K to eight. So what are your greatest hopes for that program, Dale, if you look out a few years? I think twofold. I'd, I'd love for um, that Stash 101 product to become a part of the fabric of those classrooms. And I'd love for teachers to start with just that curriculum and then see what else the platform has in way of classroom management, expanding into a token economy, figuring out how they can challenge their kids to even expand into entrepreneurship. There's there's so many different ways that you can take that software in your classroom and, and make it a part of the, the fabric of, of what you do every day. Um, and, and I'd love for teachers to share it and, and, and share it with other teachers outside of that state. Um, since it's a free platform, I, I hope that teachers across America learn to, you know, embed it into their everyday classroom and use it and more kids have access to conversation and learning and experience with money before it becomes real. Because I think that's so important for kids to be able to make mistakes, for them to feel what it's like to have a bank account, a virtual bank account, to have money in an investment account, a fake, this is all simulated free free space, um, and to invest in a stock and see what it does and and then know that they have that resource, that tool, that skill set when they get older and it's not so foreign when they become an adult and, and they know how to manage their own budget. I mean, that, that's a win. That's a huge win. Are any of your boys old enough to be on this platform? They are. And <laughs> how, are um, they, how are they doing? Well, I actually use it at home as a home management tool. So uh, they all have Stash 101 accounts and I reward them with virtual money for good behavior. And I have a virtual marketplace on Stash 101 where they can earn um, dinner with me on a dinner date alone or um, uh, something that they've wanted to buy for a long time. And um, they earn money for quick behavior changes. Um, they also earn money for chores that I've assigned for them. And wow. so I've, I've taken actually the, the classroom product and I've applied it to uh, my own household. Th- this is a, a cool tool where they can actually see the cash, experience a bank account, um, and, and learn how to manage their own budgets. If this really works in North Carolina and it does scale and goes beyond uh, that state, how do you think it could change your company? Yeah, I. Th- this is the the piece we didn't talk about, and as, as far as Stash One Hundred One goes, which is it's a huge opportunity to build trust and yeah. brand trust, and and that's a, another reason why I feel so passionate about um, this space is any opportunity to show up for our customer to deliver value is is trust building, and when we can build that trust. Um, in with the kids, with the teachers, with the parents, with materials coming home to the parents. Hopefully, when they see that ad for Stash, they they recognize that they make the connection, and and they already have that layer, that foundation of of brand trust, and and then we can step into a a customer relationship in in a very meaningful way off of a great foot and. Um, I see it as a, a growth opportunity long-term to drive demand gen, brand awareness, and brand trust. I'm glad you took us to the space of brand trust because I think what you have done in seven years, at least from an outsider, is pretty impressive, right? You have about 6 million customers or subscribers. It's a category that relies on trust, mm-hmm. right? It's, mm-hmm. it's 
I'm not going to put what I work hard for with on a platform or with people or with an organization I don't trust. So what have you learned in these seven years? I, I hear so many startups who have trouble building trust, awareness, trial, advocacy. I know you're still a young company, but you seem to have done a pretty good job of that in a short period of time. So anything beyond Stash 101, which is still early, yeah. but what have you learned about building trust and and the trial of your of your platform and repeat usage in these seven years. This is a, a pretty easy one um, because we're a financial uh, platform, and the the fastest way to lose trust when you're a financial platform is make someone worry about their money. And so um, building trust for us has been largely an exercise in building an amazing product, where you have really clear views of your money, where it is, where is it going, transfer flows, money movement, um, speed, and and trust of I put in a deposit here and now I see it over here in my personal investment account. And now I've made that investment and I see that investment in Amazon or, um, you know, uh, an ETF. That visibility and, and clarity of, of product, product design, and actually product function and working is, is the most important thing for us in building trust with our customer. Um, when, when they actually see it working and they don't worry about where their money is or where it's moving, that gives us at least a level playing field to start building trust as a brand um, and, and creating that, that deeper relationship. So, so for us, it's been an exercise of, of making sure that the product is laser focused on um, visibility, money movement, and, and making sure the customer gets exactly what they expect and, and that we don't have downtime, that we don't have um, any issues with customer service or questions about where money is. And some of it's inevitable, right? In, in the money space, you have fraud, you have locks, you have um, KYC um, on, you know, some people can't actually open accounts because they have thin files um, on, on the credit side. And uh, communicating all of that sometimes is sticky. Um, mm-hmm. But at the, the more we can do to communicate all of that in, in a clear, concise way, and the more our customers understand what's happening to them and why, I think is, is important to us to continue to build trust. So you have this great product, which builds trust as you use it. It's transparent. It's clear. It's simple. How do you make people aware of it? I mean, you've, you have six million. You're growing. That's always a challenge with a new company. What's been your strategy and your learning in building awareness? Yep, it is certainly a challenge. Uh, the the holy grail of growing in in any any business anywhere, especially for a startup, is is how do you grow without money? How do you grow organically? How do you make a product that people love so much that they want to refer people? And um, that's actually even more challenging in finance because it's not a topic that people innately want to talk about or share. And um, so organic growth in its entirety is something we focus on. And um, that includes how do we show up in social media? How do we create buzz in PR how do we create content that is engaging and educational and things people want to hear and, and, and listen to, um, people, things that people need? Those acquisition channels, that organic funnel, 
needs to needs to be robust and and needs to be constantly iterated on and and when you have still more to grow you start spending money and um that that is an exercise for a startup at least in in very judicious channel selection and optimization and and a really laser focus on data and so uh at stash we built a team that is experts right we've never used agencies that we've always built the discipline in-house and we're we're the closest to our own data and our own funnels and our own functions so being able to spend money efficiently and um effectively and acquiring customers and being close to our data science team in in measuring value lifetime value and payback that's been sort of our our secret sauce and when we've continued we we continue to press on all those organic channels that content marketing and and social um and then we also create the the muscle of of spending really well and spending efficiently and i think that combination continues to serve us really well um and both in the great market we've had in the past 7 years and now in in a, in a more tenuous market where mm-hmm. where we need to be more judicious with our spending we have that um muscle of 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 growing without spending so i think um i'm i'm excited for this challenging time i know a lot of other fintechs are are you know going to going to struggle um maybe where they've spent their way through to to growth and it was grow at all expenses now it's meaningful how you grow and and yeah, and how sure well you can grow you're already going to this space but i want you to go here a little bit more you were one of the first employees at Stash and you were the first marketing employee and you've built up a marketing department. And I think it's so interesting to talk to someone. I've had several on my podcast who have grown a marketing department from scratch, you know, from zero to whatever, 25 people, 50 people, 200 people, whatever it might be. And I'd like to hear how you went about that and what, you know, what was your thought process? What were your first priorities? Which capabilities were most important early on? What have you learned in that in that journey that would help others? So, when you're going from scratch, it's important that you start doing it all yourself. At least that's that's the approach that I took. And so, um I was building the campaigns. I was don't it's embarrassing, but I was doing the creative. <laughs> Um, it worked I, out okay. <laughs> well, there are some tests that are really questionable now that I look back at it. But, um, you know, I was doing the testing. I got close to the data. I learned the funnel. I set up the CRM. Um, and when you get to a point where you are seeing some success and the business is starting to move and you can no longer do everything as well as you should, and you can justify the ROI of an additional person to take over that particular role you make a hire and um it's ju- it's growth like that just judiciously adding to the team where there is opportunity to do better and turn an ROI in a particular function that um requires you to to increase your headcount and so um the the main groups right in in creating this marketing function were growth how do i spend money and or create content to grow how do i create the assets so some creative support there and then how do i continue to engage and 
get value out of our customers and retain them. And, and those three functions started into the growth team, creative team, and a product marketing team. And those evolved over time. And, you know, the team has ebbed and flowed over the years. Um, we now have a, a fabulous um, chief brand officer in Chidi Achara who has joined the team and, and has taken creative and comms to the next level for us. And so um, marketing has turned and focused more on growth and Stash 101 and product marketing. Uh, and, and I think as long as you are looking at the, the function as it serves the business, not as I'm going to grow a team and I'm going to just, you know, create an empire. As long as every person you hire and every function you have, you can tie to a key result, to a KR, to an OKR, you're going to win. You're going to stay lean. You're going to keep that testing mentality with the team. You're going to be, you know, exactly what the organization needs at that time in, in the growth. And so that, that's, that's just a simple formula of how I've approached it. And um, so far, so far, so good. What kind of culture did you build, Dale, as you did that? You know, how intentional were you about that? If I was with your team and spent a few hours with them, what would I, what would I feel? So I, I hope I built a culture of um, uh, marketers that feel empowered to, to do what they need to do to to reach their goals um, a culture where there's transparency in expectations um, and and safety in that and and um, the ability for the team to f- do what they feel they can creatively and and test the limits because it's a testing culture and uh, we encourage people to test and fail test and test and test and fail and learn and and there'll be some successes along the way. Um, it's a culture where I think, uh, everyone respects everyone else's skills. Um, that trust that you are here because you're serving a need and you have a unique skill set, and you're the expert in that skill set. And, um, you know, I hope everyone sees themselves as a player. I still see myself as a player. When you look at that player coach sort of, um, dynamic, I'm always going to be a player. I, I, I would, I love to jump in on teams and projects and dig in even on copy, you know, I'm not sure everyone appreciates that at this juncture, but you know, I'm in there sometimes and, and I love that. And, and it's, I think it's meaningful for the team, for everyone to understand that like you are contributing, you're a player regardless of what level you're at and how many people you're managing. So um, I, I, I hope it's a, a culture of, inclusivity and, and trust and respect and, and the freedom to, to do what you think you need to do to get your job done. So I want to switch to your career path, which I think is really an interesting. You talk about AOL. You were also at Caboose, Walt Disney, a startup you co-founded, some consulting, and then Stash. It's a diverse career path. What principle has guided you, Dale, on the decisions you made to move through that career path? I want to just have fun. <laughs> it's a good principle. <laughs> Is that fair? Um, you, no, you, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't been very planned or measured. It's been, um, I've jumped around and um, I've jumped at things that were exciting to me. And so when I've gotten bored and there was another exciting opportunity where I can learn something new, I went for it. And um, it wasn't necessarily about 
laddering my career. It wasn't where can I make that next move? It was what new things can I try? What can I learn? Some of my moves were lateral. Some were backwards, to be quite honest with you. Um, as I followed my my boyfriend, almost fiance, to another city and left my, you know, headquarter job in, in New York, um, that was sort of backwards, if not sideways. Um, but one door closes, another opens. And um, I just really love doing work. I love having a problem, figuring it out and applying my skills to a solution and helping a business. And as long as I'm having fun, we're good. Um, when I start to get bored or don't really feel connected to what, what the work is, um, I, I start thinking about what's next. And um, so I, I, that's why I said it's serendipitous. You know, my, my path through this, this career is, is mostly around me wanting to have an impact and, and being places where I feel like my skills can contribute to the organization as a whole. And having fun. And having fun. So what career decision was the toughest along that or were, the, or were any of them tough? I mean, your attitude seems to be you, you look for something new, you're always trying to learn and develop, but which of those choices along the way was toughest? I think the, the, the toughest one actually was the jump from AOL to Caboose. It was um, a, I, I felt safe at AOL. I had been there for seven years. It was one of my first jobs. And um, I knew how the organization worked and you get into a groove and you're at a big org and you're a cog and it feels predictable. I didn't yet really know what the other side was. And um, I, I think that jump to that startup, Caboose, was um, like a leap and close my eyes and, and just figure it out on the other side because you know, the, the job description was product marketing, but actually what I ended up doing was everything. Um, we were doing search marketing and product marketing and um, we were doing business strategy and then we were getting acquired by Disney and um, it was, it was, it was quite a ride. So I, I didn't know what was on the other side. That first jump, not knowing yeah. what's on the other side, that's the hardest one. Where was your growth steepest on that career path? Where do you think your learning curve was the most vertical? I, I think right there on that move from a, a bigger organization to the startup where it didn't like everything I had learned at AOL had not prepared me for that work I had to actually do. I was in books. I was like taking courses. I was like, oh, you need me to do what? I know how to do that. Yep, I got you. And I was reading books. I was listening to podcasts. I was figuring things out online, YouTube tutorials, like the every, everything. I had to really figure things out and teach myself how to do stuff and also learn how to work in a startup environment and um, learn how to advocate for the work I needed to do. And so I, I think those years there, it was just vertical, um, figuring it all out and, and getting some of those skills I needed to propel me into that next role. What mentor or mentors stand out for you in your career journey? This is always a good one. I, I've, I've been asked this question a couple times over the years. And uh, one of my first bosses at AOL, Jackie Stone, she said, there is no work that's beyond you. Like, get your hands into everything. You are not too good for anything. 
So if you get asked to go file, the, and this is back in the day when we had filing cabinets, um, if you get asked to file papers, go through the papers, learn everything on those those docs. What is that even talking about? Figure out what the strategy is and file those, but but get learn something from it, get something out of it and do that work. Put your time in. Everybody has to put their time in and you are not above any of these roles. And so I, I think that's always stuck with me. And I have always, you know, tried to embody that and, and take that to heart, even in today, right? New, new challenge. I'm not above doing the spreadsheet, connecting the data, figuring out what what's what and, and doing the work, even if it's boring, there's something to learn there. Um, and there's, and there's something to, to get out of that experience. I want to move to the creative brief section of this podcast. And my first question, you said in an interview about five years ago, that data analysis skills and video would be critical for marketing in the future. How would you answer that question today? The same way. It's very interesting, actually. So data analysis, being close to the data um, and, and being able to optimize anything you're doing, whether that's um, m- messages directly to your customer along the journey or um, ads that you're running on TikTok. You have to be able to follow the data and you have to then look, let's say it's a, a video creative, what in that video made this particular creative work? Um, and, and that's art and science together. And so um, video is not going away. Like video is still incredibly important and even more so. I'm not sure how many ads you've seen in the past uh, 24 hours, but I'm going to guess that 90% of them were video. Mm-hmm. Whether you're scrolling, yeah. whether it's a TV spot, or at least it's got some sort of animation or movement in it. Very, very, very few ads now are static. Maybe those teeny little things that are on the bottom, the, you know, those tiny, yeah, the, tiny yeah. ones. But right. even them, they're kind of like jumping around at yeah, you. Yeah, they're jumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I'm going to say I'm sticking, sticking with it. How about if I ask you the question about organizational culture and skills? What's going to be critical in the marketing organization of the future? This is interesting because this pendulum swings back and forth for marketing. Um, the CMO in yesteryear was more creative, more brand aligned, and you know wasn't as close to the data as as the CMO of today. The CMO of today has to be able to flex into so many different roles, depending on what the organization needs. And the CMO role means different things everywhere. So it, it, it's really like, how do you become a generalist and flex to what the organization needs from you at that given time? And that might change over your tenure at any particular company. Um, and, and that could include growth marketing. It could include data science. It in, could include, uh, the, should include, should include product marketing, could include creative, maybe, maybe not, social media, brand, um, and, and PR and comms, like all of these things can be lumped into what, what a marketer does these days. And um, so I, I think organizationally and, and thinking about organization design for a CMO, it's really important in your career path to make sure you have 
the experience you need in all of those functions to be able to pull that together if you have that oversight for all of it. Um, but also be able to dig deep if your role gets narrowed and you are, let's just say, you are focusing on product marketing, go-to-market strategy, uh, research, um, positioning, and then the marketing that, that, that comes from that, either paid marketing or internal lifecycle marketing. And so um, you, it's, it's, it's a tough task, right? Wide arms, but also a, a deep reach yeah. and um, the ability to, to flex with that based off what, what the organization needs. I understand one reason you were attracted to marketing early on was that you love jingles. So I, I have to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to sing them, but what are your favorite advertising jingles of all time? Wow. Um, it's really hard to come up with on the spot. I have so many in my brain. We, um, we actually did a chorus concert. Maybe this is where you, you, you listen to this. In chorus, in grade school, we had a whole jingle, like, Melody, uh, you know, what would you call it? It was the, they put together a whole jingle back to back. Um, Oscar Mayer, Wiener, um, Twit Switzers. Do you remember what Switzers were? I can sing all these crazy things. Those were yeah. like the old school Twizzlers. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And and now nowadays, anything that still has a jingle, not many companies still have a jingle. I probably can sing it if you get me going. I, <laughs> I can't can't pick out any in particular. But um, there's space in my brain for all of them. Any P&G ones that stand out? Ooh, ooh, can you start me? Can you start me off? No, well, Folgers is probably the, the Folgers best part of waking up. Folgers in your cup. Yeah, yeah. got that one. Yeah. That's probably the most longstanding modern one. The best but, part know, of waking up. Yeah. There you go. You sang it pretty well, too. Thank you. Thank you. So how do you and your role keep yourself fresh, informed, inspired? Great question. It's hard. It's hard to find the time to continue to um, stay fresh. I try my best to listen to podcasts. I try my best to read. I read a lot. Um, I'm a Flipboard fan, so mm-hmm. I have my personalization. Yep. And yep. you sure. know, at night when you're not supposed to be looking at your phone, I'm there flipping and reading articles. Um, I connect through our VC networks. And um, I've been lucky enough to have really great uh, VCs that are interested in connecting their CMOs with other CMOs and executives with other executives. And we have Slack channels together and there are um, information sessions and, and sharing. And so there are competitors of mine that I can call up because we have the same VCs and um, ask about like, what the heck's going on? Do you, are, are your you know, CPMs flying through the roof right now? What are you doing about this? How are you considering this? And uh, it's very you know, collegiate and collaborative and, and really great network. Um, and so I, I try to use all of that together and stay on top of the world and the news and stay connected to my kids and family and what's going on in society. And I think all of those together play yeah. to help keep, keep me on top of things. I love it. So it's, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And it's kind of what I try to do as well. It's the diversity of things, right? That we're look at, listen to, watch. And, and I try to balance also some things that are just pure out of my zone because I'll learn something from them. And yep. then things that I go to naturally because I know I will enjoy them. So I think it's, it's great. And Flipboard is great for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm like an advertisement over here. Yeah. Right. So who, is, who has been the most inspiring person in your life? Most inspiring person in my life. I 
know this sounds sappy, but um, I'd, I'd say it's my partner, my husband. I um, think that he he's a physician, uh, a surgeon, and um, is been someone that although has been challenged in in how he executes his job has been so committed to the reason he got into his job that he continues to persevere and and so I I'm I'm truly inspired by that because every day in and day out he's he's bogged down by administration and by um, many of the inadequacies of our our system our medical system and um, he still connects to why he's done it in the first place, that he cares for people and he feels good when he's caring for patients and he feels good when he gets those outcomes. And so I find that incredibly, incredibly inspiring um, because he overcomes those challenges every day and still gives so much of himself and comes home and still gives a lot. Mm. You know, he's, he's out every day giving a lot and he comes home and he has to continue to give a lot. And um, that's just amazing. He renews his purpose every day, right? Every day. Yep. Sometimes cranky about it, but (laughs) (laughs) generally, yeah, generally. Thank you, Dale. Have a great summer. Wonderful conversation. You've been very generous with your thoughts and inspiration. All the best to you. Thank you, Jim. It's been great. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Dale Sperling. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one is how to build trust and awareness when you're a new company, a new product. I loved what Dale said about that. She quickly said, the product has to be outstanding. The product has to be simple. It has to build trust. It has to build advocacy. So the product first. And she also then talked about creating content that breaks through, that stands out. But it's really all about building a beautiful product. Second takeaway, every day in every way is an opportunity for learning. Dale was so amazing in how she thinks about her work, her careers, her decisions in her life. She just looks at everything she does every day for an opportunity for learning. When I asked her how she stays fresh and creative, it's all about a learning feed. Third takeaway, when I asked her about the principle that has guided her career throughout life, she quickly said fun. She wants to be part of things that are enjoyable, that are upbeat, that are optimistic, that have great teams. That has been the principle that has guided her through a very successful career to date. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.